Um, my name is James Hochter from the Department of Philosophy here in Kent, and it gives me my great pleasure to introduce the first of our keynote speakers, Dr. Luna Dol-Izal. Uh, uh, I first heard about Luna as a master's student in Durham. One of my dissertation supervisors, Will Viney, pointed Luna out as a rising star in phenomenology and someone well worth engaging if the opportunity should arise. Um, <clears throat> it would seem Will's instinct was proven right, as Luna is now a lecturer in medical humanities and philosophy at the University of Exeter. Uh, her research is primarily in the areas of applied phenomenology, feminist philosophy, philosophy of embodiment, philosophy of medicine and medical humanities. She is the author of several books, <clears throat> including The Body and Shame, Phenomenology, Feminism and the Socially Shaped Body, and the co-editor of Body, Self, Other, The Phenomenology of Social in Encounters, and New Feminist Perspectives on Embodiment. And without further ado, I uh, hand it over to Luna, who's, who's going to give a paper entitled Phenomenology and Intercorporeality in the Case of Commercial Surrogacy. Thank you very much. Thank you, James. Uh, thank you for that very generous introduction. I'm very pleased to be here, and thank you for inviting me. Um, so just to give some background to this paper, um, I hadn't really done any reading about commercial surrogacy or reproductive technologies until a few years ago. I was invited to Durham. Um, to a critical medical humanities event, and I was asked to respond to a paper by a sociologist about commercial surrogacy, where she argued, and she'd done fieldwork in India, um, where at the time there was a lot of commercial surrogacy going on, and she argued that commercial surrogacy um, and gamete donation, so donating eggs and sperm, were comparable practices and should be treated as such. And it immediately struck me when I read her paper, um, and I was asked to prepare my response, um, that there was something qualitatively different about surrogacy, uh, and not only qualitatively, but ontologically different about surrogacy when compared to gamete donation, because surrogacy involves pregnancy, um, which is a very particular type of embodied existen existential experience. Um, so I turned to the bioethics literature, and I read loads of bioethics and feminist articles about um, commercial surrogacy, and particularly transnational surrogacy arrangements, and it was just peculiar that nobody was talking about pregnancy. So there was almost no mention of pregnancy as significant um, in the, the debates about the ethics of how to govern the practice. Um, and so this paper kind of came out as a response to my reading of that literature. Um, and it was just an attempt to put pregnancy into the bioethical debate um, and to, to sort of see how um, phenomenological ontology could offer something to that conversation. So um, this is actually a shorter version of a, a book chapter that's already published, and I apologize for presenting already finished work, um, but I've been on maternity leave for several months, and I, I didn't have time to write something new. So I thought um, this was appropriate because of the interest in medical humanities here at Kent, um, and also because I've never actually presented this work, so it was my first time in, in giving a presentation on this writing. Okay, so I will start. Um, so the images of baby Gami and his surrogate mother... Which saturated the media for several weeks of mid 2014, made salient the multitude of philosophical, moral, and ethical ambiguities inherent to commercial gestational surrogacy that are compounded when the practice cro crosses national, racial, and economic boundaries. In this highly controversial case of transnational surrogacy gone awry, an Australian couple allegedly left behind their Down syndrome baby with his surrogate mother in Thailand, taking his twin sister back to Australia. In the wake of the baby gammy scandal, the Thai government banned commercial surrogacy, and, and there has been an international outcry by human rights groups that argue that transnational surrogacy preys on poor and vulnerable women in developing countries. In the Republic of Ireland in the same year, later in the same year, the, 
the Irish Supreme Court ruled that in cases of gestational surrogacy, the genetic mother cannot be named as the mother on the expected child's birth certificate. In a landmark and very controversial ruling, the court declared that regardless of genetic ties, it is the woman who gives birth that is the mother of the child. This case involved altruistic surrogacy, where a surrogate carried twins to term for her sister, who was unable to be pregnant due to a disability. In Japan, um, in the previous year, um, Mitsuki Shigeta, the son of a Japanese billionaire, um, fathered 16 babies in over 12 months, and in fact, he actually fathered 19 babies um, from June 2013 using surrogates in Thailand. In his mid-twenties, Shigeta has been investigated for human trafficking and child exploitation, and he's been cleared of all charges. And this young man claims that he used serial surrogacy simply because he wanted a big family. So now he has 19 children. Um, what these diverse cases make salient is the quagmire of philosophical, moral, legal, and ethical questions that permeate practices of surrogacy, whether they're commercial um, practices or altruistic practices, gestational or traditional. And these questions concern many things like exploitation, alienation, uh, the idea of baby selling, eugenics, what can, constitutes proper parenting, and the legal, social, and existential status of motherhood and paternity. So commercial surrogacy, which is also referred to as contract motherhood, um, is the practice where a woman agrees to undergo fertilization and subsequently gestate a fetus, ultimately relinquishing, relinquishing the resulting child to its intended parent or parents. In its traditional form, the, tr the surrogate mother is the genetic parent and sperm comes from a donor or the intended father. And in gestational surrogacy, um, which is quite distinct, embryos are created through IVF um, and then are implanted into the womb of the surrogate, and she has no genetic tie to the fetus she carries. Gametes might, ca might come from um, what are usually referred to as the commissioning parents in the literature, so that creates a genetic link between the child and its intended parents. Or the intended parents might simply buy eggs and sperm um, and so it means that it's possible, very possible, and happens all the time, that there is no genetic link between the intended parents and the child that's being gestated by the surrogate. So gestational surrogacy has become an alternative to adoption um, since the advent of IVF. It is often a last resort of individuals or couples that may wish to have a child but may be physically unable to carry a fetus to term themselves for whatever reason. And while some intended parents seek out domestic surrogacy, where it's legal, so you find a surrogate in your home country, um, increasingly transnational or international cross-border arrangements, frequently with surrogates in low-resource or developing countries, are pursued in order to circumvent legal restrictions, and also primarily for reason of reduced cost. Um, so, but it should be noticed um, that many countries like Thailand, Nepal, and India have very recently curtailed access to commercial surrogacy, if not banned it altogether. So, but it's still the practice still exists in in um, places like Israel and the states. Um, so many bioethicists, practitioners, poly, policymakers, and feminist theorists have profound ambivalences and anxieties regarding the practices of commercial surrogacy. So, despite being seen as inherently exploitative along gender, class, racial, and economic lines by many, the practice of transnational commercial surrogacy. The practices of transnational commercial surrogacy have proliferated within the neoliberal market rationality that governs the global economic order. So as I said before, my interest in this, in this paper is to contribute to the debates regarding the ethical and gendered parameters of commercial surrogacy by using phenomenological insights regarding the experience and ontological status of pregnancy, gestation, and the maternal-fetal relation 
In order to provide more context for feminist and bioethical debates regarding the ethical parameters of surrogacy. Okay, so, so since the landmark um, Baby M case, which you may have heard of, was a custody case in 1986 where a traditional surrogate mother changed her mind and decided that she wanted to keep the baby. And in this case, she was the genetic mother of the baby. Um, surrogacy has been governed primarily by service or employment contracts through a property rights model. So this model Im implicitly instrumentalizes the body of bodies of surrogate mothers, rendering their uteri isolated entities that are, are sort of semi-detachable and available for use by others. So you can rent a womb is the idea. Um, the womb is my property, I can rent it out to you for a period of time. So as a result of these contractual arrangements, the dominant metaphoric landscape through which surrogacy is conceived, discussed, and defined is one of economics and production, hinging on the central tropes of labor, um, labor as in work as it, um, and private property. And there are many container metaphors where gestational mothers are described as hosts um, or vessels or carriers um, who can rent their wombs. And this invokes the idea that just the gestational mother is a temporary dwelling for her guest, which is also a term that's used a lot, with which, uh, or with whom she has no kinship ties. In fact, as Kelly Oliver notes, the, the terminological shift between what used to be called surrogate mothers, now called gestational carriers, is telling in itself. Harking back to the historical legacy of patriarchy in defining familial relations and kinship, the lo location of paternity is found in the seed, which trumps all other embodied or caring relationships. And under this patriarchal understanding of kinship, the ownership of a baby is not a result of gestation birth or an embodied maternal relationship, but results from, as Barbara Rothman remarks, those who produced, or indeed in these days simply purchased, the genetic material. So although this patriarchal privilege has been extended to the seeds of women, the understanding of kin or the question of who is or is not really related um, renders in the context of surrogacy pregnancies somehow marginal and without significant kinship generating capacity. So as a result, a donor and surrogacy amnesia is common practice in commercial surrogacy arrangements where the commissioning parents have no obligation whatsoever to maintain a connection with the surrogate who will carry their child to term, or any obligation to inform the child of the identity of their surrogate mother. So that's the dominant model at the moment. Um, and the logic arises from the already dominant metaphors of pregnancy, whereas Emily Martin notes, reproduction has been commonly treated as a form of production, where a woman is a laborer whose machine or the uterus is the product, uh, produces the product, which is the baby. And in fact, since the 15th century, as Martin points out, the same English word labor has been used to describe both what women do in order to birth their children and what workers do to produce goods for use and exchange in the home and market. So arising from the central trope of pregnancy as labor, coupled with the co contemporary neoliberal tendency to frame all aspects of life in economic terms according to a market agenda, these are the sort of terms we see in the debates around surrogacy, terms like costs, factories, contracts, com commissioning, compensation, services, and renting, among others. And these are ubiquitous in the discourses that surround gestational surrogacy. And it is almost impossible to talk about surrogacy with, without leaning really heavily on these sorts of metaphors. So obviously, the concern among bioethicists, practitioners, and others is that surrogacy and the act of gestating a baby for another <coughs> Um, or others, is something that cannot be reduced to an economic transaction alone, nor can the complexities and potential risks of the arrangement be adequately um, governed by service contracts. Furthermore, the market logic which governs surrogacy arrangements includes 
racial, class, economic, and gender inequalities through discourses that lean heavily on the language of rights and choice, casting all actors in the arrangement, um, in the surrogacy arrangement, as equal agents, when in fact there are often enormous economic and social inequalities between commissioning parents and the sur surrogates that they contract. But leaving those concerns aside um, and turning again to consider pregnancy, the dominant metaphors of production and labor are, as Emily Martin also argues, inherently limited. Um, she says, and I quote, women lose by having a complex process that inter interrelates physical, emotional, and mental experience treated as if it could be broken down and managed like other forms of production. So indeed, when pregnancy is mentioned in the bioethics literature about surrogacy, and this is, I found quite interesting, it is largely presented as a catalogue of physical and psychological symptoms through a medicalized vernacular, um, invoked as a means to quantify the, the physical and psychological cost, which is the term that's used, of carrying a, t a child to term for another. So, for example, in a 2014 paper entitled Transnational Gestational Surrogacy, Does It Have to be Exploitative? in the American Journal of Bioethics, Jeffrey Kirby discusses pregnancy in terms of physical health burdens and psychological health burdens, ca cataloging a long list of what he calls symptoms associated with implantation, IVF, pregnancy, and delivery. At no point in the article or in much other literature on um, surrogacy is pregnancy acknowledged and investigated in itself as a complex, lived, embodied, and effective experience with unique um, life-generating and kinship-generating capacity. Nor is there an articulation of or any speculation regarding the significance of the maternal-fetal relation. So what is interesting is that even in feminist literature about surrogacy, an articulation or theorization of pregnancy and the maternal-fetal relation are, are often conspicuously absent. And this is in large part due to the fact that feminists are cautious about essentializing or sentimentalizing women's experiences of pregnancy. As Deborah Satz is right to point out, arguing that there is some sort of what, what she calls a maternal instinct or sacrosanct bonding between the mother and her child-to-be is a very troubling line of reasoning because not all women bond with their fetuses and some women abort them. However, it seems obvious uh, that pregnancy is not irrelevant within surrogacy debates, and, it, and it's not useful just leaving it out of the conversation. Um, and furthermore, that without adequately theorizing pregnancy, the ethical ground of surrogacy will not be clearly delineated. So I'm going to turn now to recent scholarship within feminist phenomenology, which I think provides an important and elucidating framework for understanding the significance of pregnancy, um, and that that could enrich the ethical parameters of debates regarding gestational surrogacy. Okay, so we're going to look at the phenomenology of intercorporeality and the maternal-fetal relation. So phenomenological descriptions of subjectivity and intersubjectivity reveal that conscious experience is not only corporeal or embodied, but is necessarily intercorporeal. The idea is that beneath our explicit individual self-consciousness is a layer of responsivity, expression, otherness, and emergence through an embodied relation to others that constitutes our being. Intercorporeality from Merleau-Ponty is the idea that underpinning my conscious life is a kinship, is the word he uses, between my body and the bodies of others, subtended by my, my bodily engagement with the world. Distinct from the concept of intersubjectivity, which involves communication and relations between conscious self-aware subjects, intercorporeality signifies a primordial bodily relation with others that underpins conscious life. 
It is a tacit communication involving an embodied entanglement between self and other that constitutes the possibility for individual subjective experiences. So in short, Merleau-Ponty argues that intercorporeality, understood as our relations with others through our body, through our bodies, is an ontological structure or a part of the a part of our being that makes our being possible. Of course, in the context of pregnancy, um, when we pause to reflect on the fact that every, absolutely every human subjectivity has been gestated in and birthed from a woman's body, this insight seems so self-evident so as to not even warrant comment. However, as Lisa um, Gunter notes, to be born is, as she says, in a sense to forget one's birth. This forgetting erases the very condition of one's existence, namely a woman who gestates and gives life, gives life through birth. And in fact, this forgetting of birth and maternity has shaped much of the tendencies of Western thought to privilege the self-conscious individual, often male subject, as the starting point for, for reflection and for philosophy. And this is evident in the fact that the idea of intercorporeality or the fact that we are bound to others' bodies, as it's discussed initially um, by Merleau-Ponty and subsequently taken up by many other phenomenologists, does not start with an analysis of pregnancy or maternal constitution. Instead, intercorporeality is, for these thinkers, an account of how through being bound to other individuated bodies, through communicative and empathetic, empathic relations, we constitute our capacity for meaningful action, perception, and ultimately social relations. For instance, in Merleau-Ponty's account, intercorporeality is an ontological structure that is fleshed out in our lived experience of encountering other bodies. Intercorporeality is in part experienced through the intertwining of vision and movement, which constitutes a primordial understanding between individuated bodies. And this understanding between bodies occurs through perception, movement, and expression. Um, through these embodied interactions, lived bodies co-constitute each other. So the phenomenologist uh, Rosalind de Prose's descri description of intercorporeality, I think, is useful to elucidate this idea. Um, she writes that the self is produced, maintained, and transformed through the socially mediated intercorporeal transfer of movements and gestures of body bits and pieces. Bodies as they are lived are socially constituted, built from an intertwining with others who are already social beings. As demonstrative of this idea, Merleau-Ponty cites the example of an Im infant mimicking movement. It's a well-known passage from the Phenomenology of Perception. He writes, A 15-month-old baby opens his mouth when I playfully take one of his fingers in my mouth and pretend to bite it. And yet he has hardly seen his face in a mirror, and his teeth do not resemble mine. His own mouth and teeth, such as he senses them from within, are immediately for him the instruments of biting, for biting, and my jaw, such as he sees it from the outside, is for him immediately capable of the same intentions. Biting immediately has an intersubjective significance for him. What Merleau-Ponty is articulating is that even though the infant has no clear visual representation of his own jaw, when presented with intentional action, he senses from within a power for similar movement and gears into the intentionality of the gesture through mimicry. Um, he writes, he perceives his intentions in his body, perceives my body with his own, and thereby perceives my intentions in his body. So the idea is that there's a, a sort of perceptual motor coupling, um, to use Matthew Ratcliffe's term, that occurs with, within the encounter with another. Through these sorts of encounters, Merleau-Ponty argues that the infant does not use the eye or mind in a conscious capacity in the perception and understanding of others, but instead uses the body to perceive. Um, in this way, intercorporeal relations with others 
understood as an ongoing intertwining between bodies or transfer of movements and gestures. Sorry, just lost my place. Uh, a transfer of movements and gestures and body bits and pieces, to use de Prose's terms, builds one's body schema and ultimately the capacity for meaningful action and engagement. So, so the body schema is a key structure in Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology of the body and in his account of intercorporeality. So the body schema is a system of motor and postural functions that are in constant operation below the level of self-conscious intentionality. The body schema not only regulates and controls the body's posture and motility, um, but also how the body interacts with the objects and environment that constitutes its immediate milieu. So through acquiring habit and skill and accommodating objects in the lived environment, the body schema is constantly rearranging itself in order to facilitate the experience of smooth, motor, intentionally prefigured actions. So the body schema is significant in a phenomenology of the lived experience of pregnancy in two key manners. Um, so first, it is through the body schema's um, flexibility that the pregnant woman is able to adjust her changing form and incorporate the fetus that is growing inside her. So in short, the maternal body schema incorporates the internal en entity um, in the similar the fetus in a similar way um, to how the blind man incorporates the external entity in that famous example of his cane. Um, as her body, uh, and this is coming from Iris Marion Young, as her body changes size and shape, the body schema rearranges itself so the pregnant woman can negotiate her lived environment without having to rely on continuous con conscious reflection. So what is interesting is that despite the fetus being inside the woman's body and wholly inseparable from it, from a certain stage in pregnancy, there is a palpable sense of the fetus being separate. It does not have the same phenomenology of an as an internal organ, for example. Um, so <coughs> there is a sense of doubling, to use Iris Marion Young's term in her well-known essay on pregnancy. She explains that the pregnant subject is decentered, split, or doubled. She experiences herself as herself and not herself. Its inner movements belong to another being, yet they are not other, because her body boundaries shift. The flexibility of the body schema hence gives the pregnant, woman's, pregnant woman a sense of unity and bodily coherence over time. However, at the same time, there is a sense of inner otherness, of disunity, a palpable sense of something other that ultimately cannot be assimilated into oneself. Through this doubling, there is a felt and lived sense that the fetus, especially through its movements and in the later stages of pregnancy, especially through its movements in the later stages of pregnancy, constitutes its own body, um, somehow independent while simultaneously wholly dependent and inseparable from its gestational mother. Sarah Heinema articulates this point in contrast to Young's account. While Young posits that the movement of the fetus, um, and she says, belong to another being, yet they are not other, Heinema argues, um, this is a quote from Heinema, gestation as experienced by women who live it in the first person includes a separation between two sensory motor beings in a nesting relation, the pregnant self and the embryotic other. Namely, the fetus is not simply perceived to be a foreign entity within the mother's body, but instead, through its movements, such as kicking, turning, stretching, it is experienced as a sensory motor being, that is, a being with its own capacity for movement and perception, or in other words, um, oh, that's it. Uh, a, in other words, a being with a body schema. That's just what I read out there. 
So that's the significant point. So being with a body schema is what, what is perceived. Which brings us to um, intercorporeality and the second significance of the body schema in pregnancy and child development. So the formation of a body schema is an important um, part of child development in Merle Ponty's account. He argues that the child's transition from experiencing his or her body as indistinct from others to the capacity for individuated self-consciousness arises through self-objectification. This process is mediated through the body schema, which is formed piecemeal through encounters with other bodies. So recalling the example cited above of the 15-month-old infant mimicking facial movements, Merle Ponty writes, um, I have this quote. Um, he writes, there is initially a state of pre-communication wherein the other's intention somehow the other's intentions somehow play across my body while my intentions play across his. There is a postural, postural impregnation of my own body by the conducts that I witness. However, it is not just the 15, it is not just 15 month old infants and adults that are capable of this sort of intercorporeal constitution. As Meltz often more demonstrated in a series of now perhaps contested experiments in 1977, the capacity for facial mimicry is possibly evident in newborns within the first hour after birth, while more recent experiments with neonates have possibly demonstrated that they are able to engage, respond to, and imitate interpersonal and body exchanges such as hand gestures and facial expressions shortly after birth. And this was not the experience I had with my child at all. <laughs> Um, in fact, Gallagher and Meltzoff challenged Merleau-Ponty's conclusions regarding this capacity, this early capacity for imitation, arguing that infant imitation would not be possible without a functioning body schema and a primitive body image that entails at least a rudimentary level of self-awareness. What this suggests, as Jane Limar has pointed out in her recent writing regarding the phenomenology of the maternal-fetal relation, is that newborn infants must possess a primitive body schema and as a result, intercorporeality must begin in utero and not outside the womb with others. Uh, so um, Jane Limer writes, she writes, put simplistically, the maternal body schema incorporates the fetal body in much the same way that we incorporate artifacts into our body schema. However, in this case, doing so elicits, molds, and structures fetal movement into the schemas necessary for basic neurological development. It is this effectively structured embodied relation with the mother that guides the fetus and, possi and, then, and possibly then the child through the early stages of subjective development. What Limar is suggesting is that the maternal-fetal relation through the womb in gestation is what constitutes the newborn's and then later the child's capacity for meaningful movement, action, and perception. This occurs through the habituated movement patterns of the mother, um, the, the maternal heartbeat, breathing, and digestion, all of which constitute what Limar terms an, an interuterine world that is not only moving, but also rhythmic, regulated, and am, animate. And hence, this support system of maternal tissues is not merely a passive receptacle that simply contains a developing fetus, as the container metaphors that abound in surrogacy literatures would, um, would have us believe, but rather is a communicative and constitutive medium. Furthermore, as fetal development progresses after 22 weeks, the relationship between the mother and the fetus becomes, some, to some extent, reciprocal. The woman's body, uh, the pregnant woman's body, responds often unconsciously or below the level of perception to fetal movements. Um, and, and there's um, 
empirical evidence for that. And pregnancy becomes as such an ongoing exchange and engagement between mother and fetus through an, a type of embodied communication. This relationship, um, Jane Lymer argues, may well set the foundations for effective intersubjective relations postpartum. Or in other words, this first physical, physiological, and affective bond to the gestational mother is what constitutes the ability to form attachment bonds outside of the womb. Hence, what a phenomenological analysis of intercorporeality through pregnancy demonstrates is that the constitution of the structures of subjectivity is not merely something that occurs through social and embodied relations after birth, but has its origins in the process of gestation itself. In this way, intercorporeality is established in utero as a relation between two sensory motor cells in a nesting relation to use Heinemann's formulation. However, this gestational intercorporeal relation is necessarily non-symmetrical and codependent, unlike the relations of mutual constitution which characterize um, encounters between adult subjects. So if it, is if it is through the embodied maternal-fetal relation that the structures of one's being are formed, which can give rise to meaningful life as an individual and as a social being, then the role of the gestational mother is much more than merely one of a specialized type of incubator whose labor can be compensated through an economic transaction. And furthermore, what should be clear in this analysis is that the phenomenological structures of the maternal-fetal relation as described here with respect to intercorporeality and the body schema, are not obviously not predicated on any genetic tie between the pregnant woman and the, the fetus, nor any particular subjective feelings that the woman has about her pregnant state or the fetus that she is gestating. So in short, when considering the primary in utero intercorporeal relation as the basis for all other future intersubjective and relational experience, and as a primary ground for embodied subjectivity, expressed through a successful, uh, successfully constituted body schema, then the role of gestational surrogate plays a, subs a substantially phenomenologically and existentially significant in fetal and later child development, and much more than merely a container or vessel. So to conclude, um, so using a, a phenomenological lens to theorize um, the maternal-fetal relation sheds light what I think is missing in many discussions regarding um, gestational surrogacy, commercial gestational surrogacy, namely an adequate theorization of pregnancy as a uniquely subjectivity constituting, um, kinship constituting embodied process. While the lived experiences of um, while the lived experiences of women in pregnancy are traditionally absent in the way pregnancy and birth are managed by the medical establishment, what a phenomenological account of pregnancy reveals is that the gestational mother wholly participates in and is the fleshy foundations for, we could say, the constitution of the fetus's um, later subjectivity. So as a result, conceiving the womb, conceiving of the womb or of a pregnant woman as merely a, a kind of type of, a sort of special type of incubator is wholly reductive and inaccurate. And, and then the question arises, so if this is the case, should we account for kinship um, in these cases or how should we account for kinship if, if we think kinship is arising um, in the cases of gestation? So gestation, we could argue, is not merely a biological or physiological process, um, but on this account of the phenomenology of pregnancy is instead a complex affective state of co-constitution. A new subjectivity with the capacity for meaningful action is produced through the relationality and communication that necessarily occurs in utero. 
And in fact, when we consider what constitutes kinship, parenting, and relatedness, there is an emphasis on blood ties and a sharing of origins. So it seems reasonable to assign a type of kinship status to gestational mothers who provide the primary months of care and nurturing through pregnancy. This kinship would be based on social and intercorporeal ties arising from the initial maternal-fetal relation established through gestation, rather than on any genetic link. And we could argue that this should be the case even if the surrogate mother does not share a genetic bond with the child that she has carried, or if she does not continue to play any parental role after the child's birth. So as a result, denying the acknowledgement of kinship through the now very commonplace um, donor and surrogacy amnesia that occurs in commercial surrogacy constitutes an injustice through the in instrumentalization of women um, as baby machines, essentially, that if the effacement of their lived experience and a denial of the significance of pregnancy. So in light of this idea, or uh, this kind of uh, sort of stream of logic, that there's a proposal that was recently made by Mary Shanley and Sujatha Jasudasan in a recent chapter on surrogacy. And they propose that children who are born through surrogacy arrangements should be able to learn of the identity of their surrogate and any gamete donors, and that this should redress or could redress some of the injustices that are currently inherent to the practices. So modeled on practices in adoption, this proposal would allow the formation of new kinship relationships or family relationships, but at the very least acknowledge the key role that surrogates play in generating new life. Um, and this is a role that cannot and should not be effaced through economic um, transactions or governed entirely by contracts. So to finish, ultimately I'm suggesting that the role of the surrogate is phenomenologically and existentially significant in fetal development and in the creation of a new human subject through communicative intercorporeal relations. And as a result, any conceptualization of the ethical parameters of gestational surrogacy must recognize the constitutive role <clears throat> that surrogate mothers play through gestation and, and pregnancy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very fascinating talk. Um, so we're going to have a response from Dr. David Corfield is a lecturer here at the University. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm ready to go. Great. Okay, thanks very much, and thanks for inviting me. I think Luna, Luna mentioned uh, that she had been a little surprised to see that I'd been chosen to respond to her, given I have a profile as a philosopher of mathematics. Um, <laughs> I can bring you good news on that front, though, that uh, there's a breakthrough in very recent years in the foundations of mathematics, and it owes an awful lot to phenomenology, Husserl. So, well done you. <laughs> and homotopy type theory, if you want to look it up, and I'm following it with great interest. Um, but I do have other interests, uh, particularly in philosophy of medicine. I have a background, I was interested for a very long time in psychoanalysis, which, uh, as will appear, uh, we will find some connections with what Luna was telling us about. Um, so I'd like to thank Luna very much for, 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 her, for her talk, for showing me her paper, uh, which gave me access to a, a range of thoughts I hadn't thought about for a long time. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And she's brought together two... Uh, to discourses about pregnancy, which, which really did need to be brought together. So that's uh, uh, an excellent thing to do. Uh, I mean, it seems staggering in some ways, and it might be interesting to hear an explanation of why you think 
that the discourses of the rental of, of the womb, the, the, the bioethical discourses around surrogacy uh, haven't involved more about the uh, involvement of the mother and the fetus. Uh, of course, I'm singularly ill-equipped to speak on this, and another dimension is that I haven't ever been pregnant, of course. Um, <laughs> though I have watched my wife uh, give birth three times. So that's the closest I come to it. Um, so I want to organise my response to Luna uh, along a couple of lines. And one is, is the issue of the phenomenology of the maternal-fetal relation, uh, which is, is, is certainly fascinating. Um, and to think about, I mean, on the one hand, I mean, of course, it helps to be a mother. Uh, to think about the literature that's coming from uh, phenomenologists writing about their experiences of pregnancy, on the one hand. Um, I'm intrigued also about what can be said about the rise of subjectivity in the fetus as well, where we don't, I mean, we've all been fetuses, but uh, we have, it's harder for us to uh, reflect on our, that experience. Uh, that's the, uh, the first uh, line of questioning. And the second line of questioning is, is about what, do, what does one do? You find these very disparate discourses, uh, surrogacy on the one hand and the phenomenological description of pregnancy on the other. There's a sort of mismatch in many ways. How do you make them speak to each other is, is another question uh, I'd like to reflect on. So, yeah, so Luna's actually chose uh, some some of the quotations that I picked out from her paper, actually some that she chose to put on her slides. The fetus is not simply perceived to be a foreign entity within the mother's body, but instead through its movements such as kicking, turning, stretching, it is experienced as a sensory motor being. That is a being with its own capacity for perception and meaningful movement. Okay, so it's interesting if you read the full paper of, of Luna's, um, that well, she, she did allude to it that there, were, there is a some, somewhat of a disagreement in the phenomenological literature between uh, uh, perhaps the, I don't know if this was the very first uh, uh, exposition, but uh, Iris, Iris Young uh, and her work on pregnancy, and then um, later thinkers she mentioned too, is it Lima and Heinemann uh, as the second one. So, uh, as Luna says, while Iris Young posits that the movements of the fetus belong to another being, yet they are not other, Heinemann argues that these sorts of contradictory formulations are not useful in describing the phenomenology of pregnancy, nor do they capture the nuance of the experience of inner movement. Instead, she argues that gestation as experienced by women who live it in the first person includes a separation between two sensory motor beings in a nesting relation, the pregnant self and the embryonic other. Uh, so that I found intriguing and uh, it would be interesting to hear more about the background of that sort of dispute within phenomenology itself between these different uh, accounts of, um, of maternity, the maternal-fetal relation. Um, and someone who's written a lot, I mean, she, so Luna also quoted from Jane Lima, is it? Um, her work. Uh, she's, her whole thesis was devoted to this, uh, so I was having a look at her, her thesis uh, on this. She's, yes, explicitly setting herself up as um, rejecting Young's rejection of Merleau-Ponty. She has a, uh, a problem with uh, Iris Young, who, who herself has a problem with Merleau-Ponty's idea of some unified subject. Uh, she wants to emphasize divisions within the subject. So Lima says, I will not agree with Young that pregnant subjectivity discloses a sensation of splitting. Um, Young herself had said precisely that, the opposite. The, the pregnant subject, I suggest, is decentered, split, or doubled in several ways. Uh, and it seems this dimension that 
both Heinemann and Leimer disagree with in Young's thinking. So here's, here's Leimer in, in response. Maternal subjectivity as experienced during pregnancy can be better understood not as a split but as a process of subjectivity extension imposed and facilitated by the restrictions to the body's schematic functioning that the physicality of pregnancy requires. Extending myself, my intentional arc, and thus my subjectivity during pregnancy forges not only a new way of being for the maternal subject, but begins, I suggest, through this embodied negotiation, the shaping of the fetal movement patterns that will form the basis and beginnings of a fetal body schema. Okay, so uh, a fascinating thought in the very, very earliest sources of our subjectivity in our bodies, body schema. So she talks about, Lima talks about an effective merging through choreo choreogra choreographed body schematic functioning. Uh, and it's particularly explicit about communication, some form of a dialogue that's taking place between the mother and the fetus, especially in the, the third trimester of pregnancy. Um, and it's, it's always, I mean, she, she addresses somewhat the uh, attachment and, and uh, in child psychology, uh, there's a literature that comes from the psychoanalytic tradition uh, that looks to attachment relationships between uh, carer and infant, uh, which is being expanded in many ways by people thinking about attunement. Uh, and attunement is, is very much a sort of intermodal forms of communication where the baby's attempts to, uh, to, to, to often make sounds of various kinds or to reach for things are echoed in a different modality by the parent. So when the child's reaching for something, the parent um, raises their voice in a certain way uh, you sort of do it rather naturally, it's rather hard if you don't have a baby with you. Um, but you raise your voice in such a way so that when they finally re reach it, your, your voice inflects in a way that mimics the, the uh, achievement. So this intermodal communication uh, is seen as very important by attunement theorists. And in some ways it sounds like, from what Lima's describing, that we're pushing back the attunement process to, into the womb, into the, uh, the fetus. So I, I was particularly intrigued by that. In a, again, in a previous life, I co-authored a book on um, psychosomatic approaches to health with a psychoanalyst friend of mine. Uh, and we observed that there's an interesting literature around uh, failures of achievement, failures of attachment beyond that, and uh, adverse effects on the health of the individual. It's felt in the body somehow at a profound level. I'm particularly interested in this as well. We have, our, you, of course, James Hopter, our very own PhD student, who's working on um, the subjectivity of twinhood. And he, from the very first, he came to us convinced that something of a dialogue has already been set up, actually between the twins, not, not twin to mother, but twin to twin, already in the womb. So he has a, we've now discovered, a, a vast, rich seam of literature that he must start reading from tomorrow. No, from the end of the conference, <laughs> he, can, he can start on that. Uh, particularly monozygotic twins. <coughs> Again, it does help if you are one. <laughs> I get the feeling, I mean, just like phenomenology of pregnancy, no doubt. Okay, um, so I, I, I'm intrigued to know, uh, I mean, of course, uh, one can re reflect phenomenologically about the experience of pregnancy, and no doubt differences of emphasis will appear in those descriptions. I'm intrigued epistemologically how one, what one has to say about the fetus and how the fetus 
What can one say about laying the very foundations of subjectivity in the fetus? I'm intrigued just as an epistemological matter how that works. I mean, the attachment theorists tend to set themselves up as, as working in a fairly empirical environment uh, and will be intrigued to follow... Uh, I mean, they, they classify attachment styles in various ways between the secure and the insecure. Um, the insecure take on two forms, kind of based on whether the, the carer is is inappropriately driving the dialogue or not really not allowing the baby to respond. Um, they're enforcing their own emotional uh, contours onto the world of the baby. Uh, that's the first. The second version is a withdrawal form of communication where the, the parent doesn't, uh, maybe through depression, or doesn't engage with the baby. And these lead to um, certain attachment styles, which they then try to check empirically by seeing whether these attachment styles persist through life. Can one tell later on? Is the, is the insecurely attached child an insecurely attached adult? Uh, intrigued to know what one can say about problems with the attunement that's taking place as fetus and later life, and could one even study that, perhaps? Because it's clear, um, and it's clear in, in Lima's work, that this dialogue that takes place with the fetus can go wrong, or, or is that the right way to put it? That it can, can be far from ideal, she refers to uh, a woman who was raped um, and who perceived her uh, fetus developing in her very much as a foreign, imposed being within, within her, and how she resisted uh, the, the kind of dialogue she's describing that takes place in the, in, in the happier situations. Um, sounds like there's possibility to do empirical work later in life. Uh, as for what happens when, of course, you were a surrogate mother and you take the baby away and that, that dialogue is completely terminated, I mean, who knows? Um, so, so, yes, it's important. I mean, we heard again this from, from Luna, this idea of cautiousness and we're not wanting to essentialize pregnancy, not wanting, not every pregnancy is the same. Uh, and we're already sort of hearing that from what I was just suggesting there, that... Uh, you know, you're experiencing a foreign intrusion uh, of the fetus and you uh, accepting and enjoying and looking forward to motherhood uh, could produce rather different experiences of, of, um, of pregnancy. Well, something that reminded me, and it actually does come back, so I, I teach a philosophy of medicine module, and we certainly deal for a, a period of, a, a number of sessions at least with phenomenological approaches to medicine. Um, something that rang a bell, uh, so, what was his Svenaeus, what's his first, is it Frederick? Frederick Svenaeus um, wrote a rather interesting paper on, called, What is an Organ, Heidegger and the Phenomenology of Organ Transplantation? So there can be an uncanniness on, on, to, to one's relationship to the, trans, the, uh, the transplanted organ. Um, I mean, reading some of that, you could get resonances with, with, with sort of badly attached, in some sense, um, pregnancies, that it is perceived as some intrusive foreign body, perhaps, yes. perhaps in, in, in really serious cases, and, and some cases that we dealt with in the book I mentioned, um, where we were looking back at, yes, I mean, looking, physicians were, were, were interested in the way that transplants are taken up within the body, uh, I mean, in the heydays when psychoanalysis wasn't really questioned, sort of mid-20th century, um, they were certainly very happy to, to think that there could be problematic relationships that would lead to rejection of these organs. 
Um, there were cases of a certain individual, certain patient feeling persecuted by his transplanted kidney. One can imagine that um, it was understood at the time that the rejection of the kidney uh, was, was linked to that uh, ideational relationship with the kidney. Uh, another one, another case, had a boy, and notice it, it tends to go, doesn't it, down into individual case studies when you, when you go back to that literature. In another case, we had a boy who died when he learned it had been donated by an estranged father. Internal, internal organs being rejected somehow and echoing some sort of break with the other person. Okay, so, uh, yeah, I mean, another question I'm rather intrigued about is the relationship between the, the phenomenological world and the psychoanalytic world. I mean, some, in some ways, it sounds like some components of the psychoanalytic world, and some of those did feed into this attachment attunement uh, theory, seem to be able to make some pretty strong connections through to some of this work going on in the phenomenological literature. But more generally, then, it got me thinking about relations between discourses. Um, so, so Luna's ones are beautifully <laughs> opposed in their way. They're, they're not really not speaking to each other. One speaking the language of uh, the rental of the womb as though it's just a bit of office space that you rent out for a few weeks. Um, uh, and the other one, this phenomenological discourse on, on pregnancy. I mean, of course, there's been a long history of battles, in some sense, or, or opposed discourses. You just think back to the 19th century, um, when dominant religious understandings of pregnancy came into conflict with medical advances. For example, when they uh, first devised forms of anaesthesia in the 19th century. Uh, what a great breakthrough. This will help pregnancy, won't it? Uh, this will reduce the pain of the mother giving birth. Uh, and of course, many people at the time thought, well, look back to Genesis. There was, there was the point for the pain. <laughs> it's a punishment. It's a punishment for the fall. What are you doing? How could you possibly want to uh, interfere with, with God's intention by reducing pain? So there we go, a lovely stark contrast between discourses around pregnancy, uh, not really meeting each other in many ways. So these days, I mean, dominant discourses uh, also coming not just from, from, from the legal profession or from, uh, from this commercial world, they're also coming from science. So I'm interested to think about how they, scientific discourses about pregnancy match up and meet up with phenomenological accounts. So in this module, uh, it's kind of intriguing. There's a, there's a point with a lot of students, to the extent that I can get them interested in phenomenology, they will often wonder about the relationship between sort of the, real, the real accounts of health or the real accounts of disease as done by the physiologists uh, and what the phenomenologists are telling us. And you seem to get a bit of a difference between those who take phenomenology to be sort of radically reforming our notions of health and those who seem to present it more as an augmentation in a sense. Uh, I mean, even Javi Carell has described her approach as an augmented naturalism so, I mean, there's the real physiology going on for sure. There's the patient experience going on. Uh, and the medical profession would do very well to pay very strong attention to the uh, lived experience of the patient. But at a certain level, the, the, the physiology is going about its business and that better be attended to. Um, so I'm intrigued about how one thinks about that scientific discourses meets the phenomenological one. And something you want to point out, of course, to the student is that, is that the physiological side is itself heavily governed by metaphors. Uh, it's metaphorical all the way through. And in particular, there's a, particular, there's a, there's a very uh, powerful metaphorical line going on at the moment that you may have heard of, uh, which is linked to 
the mother thesis relation as a battle, as a struggle. Yeah? It's a struggle for resources. Basically, the baby wants to get whatever it can from the mother without killing it, of course, because it needs her to live a little bit longer. But it will t- happily take calcium from her bones. And the mother has biologically some strategies in place to resist this uh, taking over from the baby. Um, so goes these, these biological discourses on pregnancy. Um, so Robert Trivers, Trivers is, is certainly behind that, that point of view. The baby sometimes gets described as a parasite. Slightly frightening. It's been extended even more recently by somebody called David Haig, who, who sees it as a battle between the mother and the father's genes inside the baby. So that the, those genes that are promoted from the, the father's side are less inclined to be interested in the maternal welfare. <laughs> Extraordinary things going on. But um, it's highly metaphorical, obviously, as you can see. And more recently still, there's, there's a, have we heard this language of microchimerism? So this is an idea that um, cells of the fetus cross the boundaries uh, and vice versa. Maternal cells also cross into the, into the fetus. And after birth, uh, there are still cells of each in each other's bodies. Um, so we get to hear about the mother, the mother, for example, as, as, as three unique cell populations in their bodies, their own, their own mothers and their child's. And hence the, the term of chimera, this Greek mythical beast who is what, the head of a lion, the body of a goat, and the tail of a serpent. Uh, so the, 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 the woman who has given birth has the, the cells of three beings within her. So they're calling this microchimerism. Uh, but interestingly, you're getting a distinction between a, a kind of conflictual account of this and a cooperative a, a, a account of this. There's certainly, again, the parasitic idea that those cells of the fetus are actually part of its invasion plan. It launches its cells into the, the maternal body, uh, distracting the mother's defense systems against uh, it, the, the main part of itself, its, 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 its fetus. It's described, let's say we're planning to rob a bank, but before we rob the bank, we blow up the grocery store a few blocks away so the police are distracted. That's what we think this is. <laughs> so laden with this, extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, on the other side, you're getting this helpful account where um, you can have maternal, the organs of the mother's body <coughs> fail later in life and they find that certain repair is taking place and you utilizing fetal cells. So it's good to have been pregnant because you, you've gained some healthy cells from your fetus. But there's a funny third, uh, so apart from that rather simple, hostile, helpful uh, split, you're also seeing a kind of use of this microchimerism in an anti-individualism. Uh, so the self emerging from microchimeric research appears to be of a different order, porous and unbounded. Each human being is not so much an isolated island as a dynamic ecosystem. So kind of in- intriguing to hear that uh, uh, metaphorical line uh, being presented as, as something about breaking down boundaries as, as allowing a greater fluidity uh, between individuals. Okay, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up here. here. Um, so th- if you recall, my two branches of lines of inquiry were one around maternal-fetal relation and how one goes about doing it. As I say, I, one can understand uh, phenomenologists reflecting from the point of view of motherhood what is there to say about the child, the infant? How does one begin to say how the subjective body schemas are laid down in, in, uh, in the fetus? So I'm intrigued about that. And then this other issue of how does... So, I mean, already with the case that Luna's presented to us, how... how I mean, there have been some suggestions about 
because of this phenomenological line of inquiry, we might rethink uh, the relationships, the commercial relationships between the mother and the child, and at least allow the child later in life, I suppose, to get in contact with the surrogate mother. That seems like a pretty small beginning in some ways. I mean, presumably you're going to think, as I say, aspects of the dialogue have been cut off in some way. Uh, should they not be resumed? Why should this dialogue? Why should? Why should? Why should I mean, what happens? Are we reflecting deeply enough about what takes place in, in, the, uh, in the termination of that dialogue? Uh, and then more broadly, yes, how, how does one bring phenomenological uh, discourses into into relationship with these other forms of discourses about pregnancy? Uh, and there, I'll wrap things up. First, thank you very much for that rich and very multiple response. It was uh, very interesting, all the different threads you brought up about pregnancy and different ways to think about it. Um, one of the questions you started off with was you know, why, it's kind of curious, why isn't anyone talking about pregnancy in the bioethical literature? And even in the feminist literature around surrogacy. And I think it really boils down to this idea that, that feminists um, are very careful, and, and other theorists are very careful, not to sentimentalize or essentialize pregnancy, because then you get into tricky waters if you want to say it's okay to abort fetuses, if, you, if you're going to say, well, if it has this kind of important kinship constitutive um, value, then it's never going to be okay to say that abortion is okay. And I think what the phenomenological account can give us is something that isn't dependent on the subjective experience of, of um, a, a pregnant woman. So whether she experiences the fetus or the pregnancy as an invasion or as something that is very welcomed and, um, and a celebration. Um, what, what the account, I think, that thinkers like um, Heinemann and Leimar give us is a kind of structural account. So the structures of experience rather than the, the qualities of experience. Um, and, and I think that is the crucial, um, and I'd be interested to hear what others think, I think that's the crucial difference, that if you're giving a, an account of the structures of, preg of the experience of pregnancy rather than an account of the experience of pregnancy, then, then you're talking about something different. And I think rather than giving an account of, let's say, interuterine um, <coughs> modes of attunement or attachment, perhaps what we could say, what we could meaningfully say is that this interuterine relationship um, forms a foundation from which then you might have attunement and attachment in, in, in neonatal and then infant life. Um, and I don't know if, is it something that Lima argues in her thesis that there is a, a sort of attunement in the, in the womb? There are issues in that direction. Yeah, in that direction. So I, I don't know if I'd go as far as, as saying that. Um, but I think that, I mean, the capacity to have uh, relations of attunement and attachment in infant life comes from somewhere, and, and maybe we can meaningfully say it comes from this early constitutive relation that, that is in the womb. I don't think we can speak for the fetus, but, but we, can, um, we can speak for the first person experience of pregnancy, and then we could perhaps give an account of the structures of the experience of pregnancy, um, which, which then the first person experience might map onto um, in meaningful ways. Um, uh, so does that answer some of your, your worries? Uh, what was the, yeah, and so I think it's interesting in the bioethical literature because, I mean, you do get into kind of muddy waters when you start to think, okay, well, what's the difference between pregnancy and other forms of bodily labor, if we want to use that term? So if you're a professional sports person or a professional dancer, you use your whole body in the capacity um, to generate a, a kind of economic 
you know, in an economic way. So you earn your income through playing sports or dancing, um, or if you're a sex worker, you might use your body in a particular way. And so when do you then draw the line between using your body um, as a sports person or as a dancer or then as a sex worker and then as in your reproductive capacity? Um, and it's very difficult to draw that line. And that's why pregnancy is just usually thrown in with everything else. Well, we can compensate for the costs of being pregnant and it's, certain, it's got this sort of duration, it's got this sort of physical impact on the body and, you know, we can use some sort of pretty straightforward measure to say, well, this is how you'll be compensated. Um, and, and obviously in that kind of instrumental logic, then you take out the sort of special thing, I guess you could say, in pregnancy, the thing, and I talk about it in terms of Cora Diamond's idea of the difficulty of reality there's some things that are just sort of transcend our easy comprehension and I think the kinship generating and the life generating um, capacity of pregnancy is one of those things it's, it's a, one of those things that we just rub up against and we can't really explain it like how is it that we make another life through a body um, and it's the difficulty of reality as Cora Diamond um, discusses that, that we just we kind of throw our hands up and go, I, I don't know, it's, we know it's special, but then we can't really encapsulate it in concept, so therefore you can just throw it out and say, well, it's the same as this and this and this. So I think that's when you get to the limits of the, the bioethical literature, and maybe others are more familiar with these kind of debates, um, I'd be interested to hear if, if others think there is something different, because it was my intuition straight away, and having been pregnant, it was my more than an intuition, but kind of an experience. There's definitely something different, it's definitely something special um, that that needs to be acknowledged um, and then if you acknowledge it then how does that change um, the, the, the kind of constellation of factors in the surrogate um, kind of surrogate commissioning parent and then there's all these kind of agencies that govern the arrangements as well and I guess that surrogacy is a kind of series of relationships and what's really emphasized in the literature is the relationship between the child and its intended parents um, and the surrogate is usually just an invisible kind of part of that relationship um, and, and I just thought what would be kind of interesting to shift this emphasis when thinking about the, the various types of social relations and think about the surrogate and the, the intended child um, rather than just the child and the, pa the intended parents. So, so that was the kind of aim. Um, and yeah, the, the, I think the metaphors, I mean, it's just absolutely fascinating once you start to unpack the metaphors that govern our medical discourses and the discourses around reproduction as well um, because they, they definitely shape... Um, our logics, our thinking, and our, our ethical intuition. So what we think is permissible is shaped by the metaphors that we're deploying. So once you start to strip away the metaphors, then you start to question what you think is ethically permissible as well. So that's really important to always have an eye on the, the dominant language and structures in the language that are, that are in place. Okay, I'll stop because I want to leave time for questions. David for really fascinating uh, talk and a really fascinating response and an equally fascinating response. To response. Uh, so the floor is now open for questions. Uh, so I'll start. I'll start with Matt because he's the first person I saw. So Matt, um, thank you for that. Uh, this is going to be a bit of a government backbench question. Yeah. Will the honourable friend agree with me that she was completely right? Um, but it was the, in particular. I was really interested with what you said about um, philosophers. Not it being so banal and obvious that all humans originate in a mother, mm. and never talking about it. it reminded me of a passage in the third meditation of Descartes, which I looked it up and it's worse than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'll uh, just read it to you quickly. So, insofar as I'm a thinking thing, 
Uh, my parents did not make me, so it's always my parents. It doesn't distinguish between father and mother. They merely brought around an arrangement of matter, which is a wholly inadequate <laughs> description of pregnancy, <laughs> um, that I have always regarded as containing me. So he completely dismisses the material. Yeah. The mind, and it's, it's fascinating because I see those early to mid 20th century male this <coughs> is really trying to escape the mistakes of Descartes, but this is something they don't even talk about at all. Mm. So the, the, the kind of question I want to ask, which is basically just, could you say more about it, mm. is, is any, can any worldview based on the idea of a subject, an independent subject, escape misogynism? You know, is it not just essentially misogynistic if it fails to think of its origin in another human being, literally, physically? Which is exactly what it pretends yeah. is not the case. Well, misogyny is a strong word. Maybe like a, a sort of an amnesia would maybe okay. be a kind of more democratic way to put it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And I think, that, I mean, there are plenty of feminist thinkers who, who point out this kind of amnesia in, in Western thought. That it was just a forgetting of our origins. Um, and, and then the self-aware, rational subject is, is the starting point for reflection as though, you know, it came from nowhere at all. I mean, what's I mean, to the phenomenologist's credit, at least they do talk about child's relations with others and Marie Ponty in particular. So there is a sense of the infant is developing into a self-aware, rational subject, um, and that's done through uh, interaction with other bodies. Um, so there is, I think, there's something that the phenomenologists have brought in that maybe were, was missing, was certainly missing in Descartes. And thank you for pointing out that passage. <laughs> I mean, he's the father of, of modern philosophy, yeah. isn't he? So. That's not surprising we have those tendencies. Thank you for the topic. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, Todd May. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Uh, thank you, Amir. I, I was just curious how optimistic you are about what phenomenology might be able to do, practically speaking, um, because you mentioned the um, discourse of economics, which tends to pervade yeah. the issue of surrogacy. And um, because, mm. as uh, an economist colleague of mine once told me, that economists tend to be a lot of them tend to be very arrogant, whether they know it or not, about their, their discipline and what they're doing is somehow more hardcore than something the humanities might provide. So you can, you can imagine there's an economist like Gary Becker or someone that's styled in that tradition and say, well, it doesn't matter what a phenomenologist has to say. Yeah. The way in which we characterize this works. It works to facilitate these yeah. things that people want. Um, so I don't know if you've had past conversations with the people in McGill. That it sounds like you did from, from your opening remarks. Yeah. I mean, how, how does that come off? Do they take phenomenology seriously, or is it... Yeah, well, it was interesting, because the paper I responded to initially that kind of got me down this sort of rabbit hole was a, a sociologist called Bramwin Parry, who had done all this field work in India about gamete donation and surrogacy, and, and, the, and under the umbrella of looking at these practices under a neoliberal agenda, and she kind of concluded, well, we kind of say they're, they're the same thing. It's useful to say it that way. It's kind of pragmatic, in a way. It's hard to dis differentiate between surrogacy and gamete don certain types of gamete donation. Um, but she was very, in that particular case, she was very responsive to stopping to think, oh, isn't there something essentially and ontologically different about pregnancy? So she was very responsive. She's not an economist. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. I'm not particularly optimistic. I thought it was worth throwing this, this sort of thought out there. And I don't know that it would be taken up by anyone or any bioethicists. Uh, but I, I think what that sort of attitude occludes is all of the injustices that arise. So especially when you talk about transnational arrangements where there are these massive inequalities um, between the commissioning parents and often the surrogates. 
and and then it's all couched in a kind of rights discourse. Well, it's her right to do what she wants with the body, and actually she's getting you know this amount of money, and in her context, that's a huge amount of money. And and if if you if you kind of keep zooming in and out, then you can kind of rationalize anything. Say, well, actually, in within her context, but I, I think then it includes certain types of injustices, and and yeah, I mean, I I don't know what else to say except I'm not very optimistic. <laughs> but, yeah. So this gentleman with the straight Yeah. Um, I just want to posit a bit of a thought experiment. It's yeah. a crazy thought experiment that small bosses do now, uh, which might complicate the notion of intercorporeality and just what you, what you think about. The surrogate mother, you know, once she's been imparted, um, let's say we put her in a coma for the duration of the pregnancy. Now, I know that the, the notion of corporeality doesn't just consciousness, but what would be, or how would that problematize it? Because that mm -hmm. sort of relation, which is problematic, then is, can be taken out of the picture. I mean, you know, a, a, perhaps someone who's quite nursery could say, well, let's do that. Let's, you know, as part of the contract, you've got to be the coma, so that sort of bond wouldn't uh, materialize. What would you do? Yeah, I mean, I'd say that you could still, I mean, there's still some sort of communicative relation between the mother's body and the fetus that she's, even if there isn't, even if you're lying flat in a coma, there's still a, a communicative relation between the physiological aspects of being in this interuterine environment um, that's constituting. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment because you lose then the, um, the idea of the movement of the body schema constituting another body schema. So it's something that I would think more about. Mm. Yeah, um, I'm just wondering if you could say uh, a bit more about sort of which, which kind of constraints mm -hmm. you think that the sort of phonological account of gestation uh, that you've been longing um, uh, should place on the morphinization of pregnancy. So you, you, mm. you, you sort of suggested that that, you, yeah. sort of that that phonological account can provide the basis for a kind of constitutional notion of, of kinship. Yeah, which so, could be sorry, could be yeah. distinguished from a genetic notion. Uh, yeah. And but how how so what what would be um, implications for sort of modernization be? Um, yeah, I mean I was that constitution notion of kinship. And yeah. how would you counterize it in distinction in actual to, practice. to genetic? Oh, so oh, okay. Well, I guess it's yeah, it's an interesting question because I guess the notion of kinship is very muddy when it's possible to have genetic ties to a fetus, it's possible to purchase eggs and sperm, have no genetic ties, but own the eggs and sperm and implant them in a surrogate, and it's possible to carry a child yourself, and it's possible to adopt and have kinship. The, the, I, it's hard to characterize the difference between being genetically related to a fetus and, and not being genetic related, because there are various ways you could be kin to a fetus and not related genetically if you know what I mean. And I think of all the proposals I've read, the one I um, offered at the end was one that seemed kind of sensible to me in that you could say there is a type of kinship relation. It doesn't have to be acknowledged, but the possibility of acknowledging that kin relation, it, maybe there, maybe it's more just to say that possibility is open than to, to have this kind of um, amnesia, which is the current practice, um, so much like adoption. So the possibility of finding out who your biological parents are when you reach a certain age is available to you. Um, but if you choose not to pursue that information, then, you know, that's just up to you. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so, you, so uh, you don't think that um, sort of acknowledging that sort of kinship relation should place any, any, any sort of stricter constraints on modernization? Um, is it, is yeah, well, I mean, with, with, with the sort of the yeah. current practice, with the uh, addition, and then yeah. you should be able to know your, 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 uh, your, your uh, mother, uh, would that be, uh, could that be left in place? The, the, I think it's just so complex because there's so many different types of practice. So it, it's very different to, to go to California, pay a woman $200,000 to carry a child to term than to go to India and pay a woman $4,000 to carry a child to term. So it, it, it's, it's a very different kind of um, power relation, a very different cultural practice. And so it's, it's very different, difficult to say in a kind of blanket, yes, we should limit marketization because in different contexts it means very different things. Um, in in many places, like in the UK, it's not uh, legal to pay someone to be a surrogate, but you can compensate someone if they altruistically offer to carry a child for you. And that compensation obviously is a payment, but it's not a transaction in the same way as if I hire you to, to carry a child. So, so, yeah. Yeah. so you don't think that any specific constraints flow from the phenological account itself? No, I don't, well, I think it would have to be put into a kind of <coughs> bioethical conversation with the particular context in which something is happening. So no, I don't necessarily think that there, that we could say that let's ban surrogacy as a result of this account. Does that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, do, do you disagree? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, no, I, I was just, um, yeah. yeah, we were just... Okay. <laughs> it's okay. Thank you very much. I tremendously enjoyed your talk. Thank you. you. I was very interested in this question. Yeah. Uh, when I was reading your content. Mm -hmm. Why? Because when I was a student a long time ago, because the, the extreme impact this idea of kinship specifically, yeah. which you wrote, um, uh, uh, still is very interesting. Uh, um, there are extreme ideas. For example, Julia Kristeva said in general that mother, baby should be taken away from the mother after the birth. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, it's a very specific attitude. I don't know if it is uh, how extreme it is. But um, my question uh, for now is, you talked about, uh, you put much more interesting question in relation kinship of surrogate pregnancy. Uh, and you, first you said about monopontis mm -hmm. attitude, the phenomenological, uh, the other within me, I'm within other. Uh, and then uh, you and toward the end you asked the question, what kind of kinship it should be? Mm -hmm. I just wanted to clear myself, yeah. for myself, that which kinship it should be after all. Meruponte uh, kinship, uh, version of kinship, or traditional understanding? Okay, yeah. Oh, so when at the end of the talk, I think I'm talking more about the traditional understanding and of that's kinship. That's what I, yeah. I, 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 I thought. Yeah. No, but it's interesting there's that resonance in Meruponte's writing about kinship, because I think I mean, I think it's a resonance that can kind of be thread through this account as well, that there, there is a kinship between self and other. Um, but in the, uh, yeah, I'm talking about more like familial relations or kin relations, mm -hmm. so, so quite distinct from Merle Ponty's idea. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Um, yes, I had a question. Um, at the end of your paper, you um, made claims about the specialness um, that was your term of the um, pregnancy, the experience of pregnancy and so on. But I wonder whether the concept of intercorporeality in fact uh, takes from the specialness of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. You know, that um, if we um, follow kind of an account of 
um, whole constituting yeah. uh, subjects, embodied, and so on. What we, if we follow that and are true to it, then what we lose, in fact, are is an account of individual subjects somehow connecting, whether bodily or not, mm. and we um, we approach uh, an account of human experience as kind of intertwined and mm -hmm. um, where you, your, your, your embodiment is sort of extended and shared. Mm -hmm. And um, we have very specific examples of that. I mean, from, and there are examples where we are, feel quite comfortable kind of giving economic expression to them. So mm -hmm. you have the care of very small babies mm -hmm. who spend a lot of time up in arms. And that is a very uh, co- kind mm -hmm. of um, dependent <coughs> corporeal kind of experience, yeah. perhaps more so than pregnancy, which is mm -hmm. dimmed by all the water and so on. Mm -hmm. um, I just wonder about the specialness. I'm, I'm, I'm not clear on what grounds you're... I mean, of course, yeah. there's the inside, but if we're becoming looser on our yeah. notion of the body and its limits, then inside may, may lose some of its clout. Well, I guess, I mean, specialness isn't a very precise term, is it? But I guess it's like that that newborn baby comes from somewhere. So the, the generation of that life or that capacity for life is what gestation offers. And that is a unique... I mean, just in, in my thinking, it just seems like a, a unique capacity that other embodied relations don't kind of match up to. I don't know, what do other people... <laughs> because I, I mean, I guess what the account of the structure, the phenomenological account of a kind of phenomenological, ontological account of the structures of pregnancy kind of gives us the condition for the possibility of other embodied, caring, constitutive relations, right? Because without the generation of the subject in the first place, we wouldn't have the capacity for these other relations that could then possibly be compared to. Is that? I, I, I feel like I, I think that it seems to me that you um, are attaching a kind of originary and launch pad importance to pregnancy that if I think if we take uh, mm -hmm. intercorporeality seriously we in fact lose something of that but okay yeah okay, so any other questions Sure, I'm going to ask a question. I have one. Think about what you said. Yeah. Just, just, just to try out an argument that yeah. there should be some more substantive constraints yeah. from logical accounts. Could you make the argument that um, uh, this sort of this sort of constitutional kind of kinship uh, brings with it a certain ethical responsibility? Because mm -hmm. after all, when you are gestating a, a child, you are sort of, according to the phenological account. You are sort of uh, involved in the early constitution of an ethical <coughs> mm -hmm. and that that brings with it a certain ethical responsibility. And uh, couldn't you then argue that 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 ethical responsibility places certain constraints on how you can relate to um, mm -hmm. the subject that you have been yeah absolutely, uh, and I mean stating, which, for instance, you could argue will well, you you can't sell it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, that's precisely one of the examples I gave at the start of the talk was that in 2014, the Irish Supreme Court ruled, basically ruled against any form of surrogacy and said, whoever gives birth to the child is the child's mother. So there is this ethical obligation from the fact of gestation and birth. 
Um, so yeah, it's absolutely a line of reasoning. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's a line of reasoning that you could go down. Yeah, absolutely. You seem to be, have certain reservations against going down that path. Yeah, because I think it's often the case that children are are adopted or raised by other carers, or and and have certain types of kin relations that are just as important and valid to them. So it, I don't think it makes I, I I kind of don't think it makes sense to say just because you gave birth to a child you're the the mother. Um, so in that case the the woman who was the genetic, who was the kind of genetic mother, so her sister, had to then adopt the children that were birthed from her sister, um, and and that was the, what the Supreme Court ruled. So surrogacy is impossible in Ireland. Um, yeah. So no, I mean you're absolutely right. You can take it down that line of reasoning, but that's why there are so many competing discourses in bioethics about what's permissible and what should be permissible and. Yeah. I, I guess you wouldn't have to conclude that surrogacy was, was legitimate on, on, on the line of reasoning that I was yeah. sort of... Um, but that, that you have an ethical relation that... That you have that, an ethical relation that yeah. places certain constraints on, on how you can sort of manage that relation. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, for instance, when it comes to, to, to um, mm -hmm. yeah, selling uh, Yeah, well, it's, yeah. We have time for uh, maybe a couple of more questions. So, does anybody? Okay, it's my turn. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be really selfish and I'm going to ask you a question. You, you're, one, of the, one of the things, uh, you, it was a quote from somebody else, but he yeah. used the quote uh, that basically that it seems gestation seems to form or effective. Our effective intersubjective relations to both parties. So I'm just interested in terms of if we introduce another thesis into the equation, <laughs> what, what do you think are the implications for? If you imagine, I, I don't, I know it's not your area, but it's yeah. just more that I'm interested because yeah, obviously. No, it's, course, yeah. So do you think it, when you introduce uh, another thesis into the equation, do you think that that's that there's a this triad triadic relation that perhaps what, what do you think that how do you think that might affect some some intersubjective relations at, at, at a later point. Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, I've never given this any thought. Uh, oh yeah, and I know you have. I know, yeah, but this is, I'm just, it's more so just, I just want to, yeah. to just pick your, your it's, brain. It's interesting, it hadn't even occurred to me when I was writing this and, and reading all of the accounts of phenomenology of pregnancy, because there isn't an account of pregnant, you know, gestating twins. Uh -huh. that, well, not certainly not one that I came across, so it's something I haven't um, really given much thought to. But you're right, there is something very interesting about the, the communication that's not just happening, let's say, with the maternal body, but within the womb, between the, the bodies inside. And I'd, I'd be interested to hear, I mean, it sounds like you've done some thinking oh, yeah. in this direction. I've done a little bit, and I'm very sympathetic to, to Jamaican, so, but uh, yeah, I definitely would be interested to, to sit down and talk a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. But do you think that there's some sort of other relation? That uh, yeah, I suppose what I think is, um, it depends on, I think the biology has a lot, has a large part to play in it because, as I said to you earlier on, the, uh, the septum that develops between twins. So, in the, the case of fraternal, it's a thick septum, but in the case of monozygotic, it's thinner, loose, or in some cases, no septum at all. Okay. And I think that just facilitates tactile interaction, and that, oh, yeah. and I think that that that, in it, that has to act in some sense as it facilitates some kind of prior or rudimentary intersubjective relation. And I think that's what goes on to form. That's yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, yeah. it would be really. I, yeah, I'll yeah, talk yeah, more. yeah, yeah. Thanks a minute. So, 
Okay. Good. This is perhaps unfair, you know, yeah. given it's so late in, in the evening and so on. But would you say something about the role of metaphor in yeah. all of this? And I, I was just taking, by the way, you and your respondent used the term. You know, you, you indicated the presence of various metaphors. Oh, yeah. oh, that's a metaphor. This is said in metaphorical terms. Is there an implication in, in this way of referring that metaphorical expression is somehow secondary or inadequate or perhaps not quite as strong as another type of I think reference which might be, yeah. say, reference to facts or something? Well, I think our reference to facts are often through metaphors anyway. Um, oh, sorry, our, our reference to facts is, is often mediated through metaphor anyway. So I think the idea is that we can't do away with metaphor because that's how we have to speak about things. But, but if it's that central... But we have to be alert to the metaphors that we're using. Uh, so in, in alert in what way? Like, I mean, do we then have to be alert about the, uh, to the figurative character of language in general and to build that into our account? Well, I think alert in the way that we understand the sort of metaphorical discourses we're in, kind of um, operationalizing, how that then shapes our intuitions about certain practices. So if, if you see pregnancy as a battle between the mother and the fetus, you see it as an antagonistic relationship, and that might shape your intuition in a certain way. Well, then it's, you know, it's permissible to abort fetuses later on because actually the fetus is a parasite and it's trying to get the mother you know so so our kind of intuitions about what might be ethically permissible would be shaped by the sort of language we use and I think in the discourses around commercial surrogacy there's a really interesting metaphoric language where um, surrogates are often spoke the the, the the metaphors of the gift and hospitality are, are used a lot so the surrogate is like a hotel she's got her guest and you know, there's this kind of sense of hospitality. She's she's giving this gift to the intended parents, and she's um, her, her embodied hospitality is making this gift possible. And when you start to use language like gift and hospitality, then you start to occlude the fact that it's governed by a service contract and it's an economic transaction. And it just sounds like, oh, it's just one woman helping another woman. She's giving her a gift, you know. So and and that makes it sound more permissible. Um, and and I, I think that if you're alert to the sort of metaphors that are dominant in in just discourse, like in the, the way it's reported in the media um, or reported in, um, in medicalized contexts, then you can start to become aware of how our intuitions are being shaped in particular directions. Yeah. So are they just different descriptions then? And we just have to face up to those. This yeah. is what's happening. But no one of them is more foundational or adequate yeah. or valid than any other. Well, and then we start to use different languages, different ways of thinking, and different technologies develop. Yeah. So I think that's But some of those might well be in con conflict with each yeah. other. And do we just say yes to that? I mean, I hope you will say yes to my question, because I think that's what you're showing. Yeah, yeah that we yeah. have these yeah. conflicts. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So I think that's it. That we've, so. we've reached the end of the session. Thank you. Thank you for the day. Um, just to give you a heads up, we start tomorrow at uh, nine o'clock with welcome of coffee.